Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The podcast that is laser-focused on delivering for you in an unspecified way. I'm Dorian Lenski. Let's meet this week's very right-wing panel. Hannah Fern is a columnist for The Independent. Hi, Hannah. Hello. I do hope people got that joke without me explaining it. I really hope so. I was going for some very angry uh, Corbynites. Uh, We'll save the Bojo post-mortem for next week's live show, but what did you make of his farewell speech? Well, I'm very characteristic of the man. the hubris, the, humi- the lack of humility. Um, I, what really made me chuckle was when he, uh, the, the statement he made about um, everybody having changed the rules halfway through, which is just laughable. Obviously, uh, if you behave appallingly and your party chuck you out, there's, there's nothing unconstitutional about that. Mm. This idea that he's still hard done by, that the country's made a terrible decision, his party's made a terrible decision. Um, you can think that, but you shouldn't make it clear exactly, to the country that exactly. you think that. Uh, yeah, so uh, also the, the take, trying to take um, once again uh, the kind of credit for managing the vaccine rollout of his, his big achievement. That, as we all know, that was an NHS success. But he hasn't got much else to be able to uh, attach to his name, so he's trying his best. Um, I, I, I really hope we won't see more of him, but well, he hints. Classics buffs noticed the reference to Cincinnatus, uh, the Roman statesman who came out of retirement for a second term as dictator. Um, do you think he believes he can make a comeback? Yes, I think he does. I think he thinks he can. This reference to the plough was interesting. He obviously wants to go away and make some money, <clears throat> clearly. Uh, I think he thinks he can take a few years out, um, bolster his bank balance and then come back for a second round. But he's absolutely misunderstood uh, where the country is. Well, people don't he... generally come back, do they? I mean, Churchill did, so maybe that's what he's thinking. But generally, when people... Uh, are out of number 10. I mean, particularly you would think if they've been kicked out of number 10 by their own party, they they don't. They sort of go, well, I guess that was that. I had a good time and it's not going to happen again. Yeah, I think also he doesn't seem to understand that he needs his party to get back in and they are done with him now. <laughs> yeah, he must be looking at Trump and thinking that's what I need. Uh, yeah, well, if he looked at Twitter, he'd be um, not unreasonable to think that. They are out there. Are they? Yeah, sadly. Really? Mm. Boris mania. Roz Taylor is a writer currently working on a book about trust. Hi, Roz. Hello. Will Boris Johnson be in your book about trust? Um, Yes, I think he might be as a sort of sideline. I think trust is more likely to be in my book about trust, and not just because of her surname, but (laughs) because she just keeps banging on about wanting people to trust her. And, you know, really the last thing you should do if you want people to actually trust you is to tell them to, because it shows that you've failed to inspire that sentiment in them. Uh, This Saturday, in the week that Leave.eu goes into liquidation, uh, London will host the first national rejoin march. This seems like a a taller order than stopping Brexit, which we all marched for back in the day uh, to immense success. What's um, the purpose of a demo like this at a time like this? Well, the purpose of many demos is to achieve a sense of solidarity. And Mm. I think that's what's going on here. I mean, it also speaks to a sense that things are in flux at the moment and that the effects of Brexit obviously are really starting to be felt with the delays at Calais over the summer, with the fall in exports. And people are finally being forced to admit, those who didn't want to, that it has had a bad effect. I think it's also a bit of a desire to prod Labour into opposing Brexit. Good luck with that because I don't think it's on their priority list. And the risk is that it seems slightly indulgent in the face of the cost of living crisis. Now, I'm not dissing anyone who wants to go on this march. I'd love to rejoin. Uh, I wish you very well. But I think the country at large at the moment is 
focused on the cost of living crisis and that this feels like a bit of a risks looking like a bit of an indulgent sideshow. I mean, I guess I suppose the thing is, is it's probably not going to make much impact. It's probably not going to get reported much because of that larger context. But it's a sort of it's a flag in the ground. And so we can say, oh, right, this this here is where we managed to get however many people are going to be able to get. Yeah. Join presumably the organisers and people going, knowing that that would be a very long process. But I suppose I can't see the harm no. in just making that statement. I mean, I, I, you know, the whole what we learned from the Eurosceptics wasn't it, that, that they never really admitted defeat and they spent decades, you know, in the wilderness building up to uh, the 2016 referendum. Yeah, anything that makes people feel that they are involved in politics, that they have a voice, even if it's not necessarily being listened to, that there are other people out there who agree with them at the moment, at this point, I think is a great thing. Our guest this week is a historian and writer for Open Democracy, whose background is in researching secretive clubs and shady money running through politics. So it keeps him busy. There's more overlap than you might think. (laughs) (laughs) He was our final guest on the show before we started recording the podcast remotely during COVID, which we can only assume that he started. His new book is Behind Closed Doors, The Secret Life of London's Private Members Club. Seth Teve, welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, What does an understanding of these clubs bring to an understanding of politics? You have to bear in mind that these places were created specifically to do backroom deals in. And it's not surprising that with Westminster not just being – they were built before Westminster's uh, infrastructure was built. So actually the whole sort of parliamentary ecosystem is there. There's a big difference, I have to say, between which party is in power and how important these clubs are. Because if you think back to the Blair years or even previous Labour governments, it's quite embarrassing to admit that you're a member of one of these places. Mm. Um, There were a few of the sort of new fashionable places like Soho House and Home House that were sort of quite big in the Blair years, but you didn't talk about it. Whereas... Clubs like this are in the lifeblood of the Conservative Party. Uh, not, weirdly enough, the Carlton Club, the official Conservative Party club, because every parliamentary candidate who wants a career joins that place in the hope that they might hobnob with some party bigwigs. And obviously the result is those people give it a, a clear berth. But in a lot of the lesser-known, um, lower-profile ones, um, you will find quite a few politicians. And we're going to be discussing Liz Truss later. Um, she's quite fond of Five Hartford Street, which we can get into. So what are these clubs? Because the private members clubs where I would have maybe gone to like a book launch or a music thing would be the kind of, like I said, the trendier ones, your Soho House, you know, Groucho still. So what are these? I don't see a lot of conservative politicians in there. The first thing to remember is that these places are basically just very large lounges. They're very nice lounges with dining rooms, but that's all essentially there is to it. Um, The really earliest clubs, the sort of aristocratic ones of the 18th century, the Boodles and Brookses like that, were run by private landlords to fleece the rich. That's all that they were about. And the reason I mention this is when you think of traditional clubs, you think of the much later ones of the 19th century, these ones that are owned by members, these very big conspicuous buildings that want to be noticed. They're not like these slightly shady little townhouses. Now, the really successful ones uh, of recent years are run by... Um, well, a small circle of people who are often Conservative Party donors. So Mark Burley and his son Robin Burley set up places like not just Five Hartford Street, but um, Annabelle's, um, Mark's Club. The, these are all places which are quite close to Brexiteering. Um, this is Mark's presumably with a KS, not an X. That's right. <laughs> well, <laughs> amongst the members. But if you look at the very earliest Eurosceptics, I mean, Euroscepticism literally started in these clubs. It's people like Tiny Rowland. It's people like James Goldsmith. 
Um, and if you look at the children of these people, they are still around in politics in many cases. Um, the, the, these people back in the 60s and 70s, before Britain even joined the EEC, were obsessively banging on about how Britain had a buccaneering economic future as a sort of wheeler-dealer nation. So small ideas murmured in these darkened corners can actually become mainstream over time. I was actually horrified to discover reading uh, Michael Crick's Nigel Farage biography that a restaurant that I quite like going to occasionally, uh, the Boysdale, was Nigel Farage's favourite restaurant. So I'm very glad that I have not been to or indeed heard of most of these clubs. <laughs> this week on the show, Britannia is finally unchained. Liz Truss is Prime Minister and her cabinet is a merry gang of woke-bashing free marketeers. How did we get here? Who is Liz Truss? And why is Liz Truss? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, comedian Joe Lysett has forced a complete rethink of Laura Kinsberg's new Sunday morning show by being mildly sarcastic about the new Prime Minister. We discuss the moment that broke the internet, at least for Westminster watchers. First this week at 12.30 on Monday afternoon, Graham Brady finally ended the Tory leadership contest after, I believe, 17 long years. As expected, Liz Truss won the contest. As not expected, she only got 57% of members versus 43% for Rishi Sunak, the lowest margin of victory of any Tory leader under the current system, including Ian Duncan Smith. Most of the polls were miles out. Uh, YouGov was out by 17%. Roz, the mood in the room seemed rather anticlimactic. So we already know she had the support of a minority of MPs. Do these numbers make her look weak? And do they perhaps make us think that there was a little bit of that it was mistaken to think that this was sort of going to be a coronation and Sunak never had a chance. Yeah, I think uh, she was very lucky and she got a sense of the momentum seemed to be turning towards her early on. And she cultivated that and rode with it. And I think I wouldn't be surprised if quite a few Tory members actually changed their votes towards the end of the process because you could, you could, you know, you didn't have to vote definitively. You could change it uh, towards Sunak. But... Yeah, clearly, if there were not enough, I think the mood was anticlimactic because it was widely expected. You know, we, we all knew that she was pretty much going to win. We just didn't know by how much. I think the things she's done since um, have fought off any suggestion that she looks weak um, in the party. She could have gone down the route of taking people into her cabinet who have vocally disagreed with her. And she hasn't done that. She clearly thinks that she doesn't need anyone from the One Nation wing of the party or who had pretty much anything to do with Rishi Sunak at any point. And she has cleared all those people out. And that shows that she is determined to project this Iron Lady vibe because... As we have seen today and yesterday in her speech, she is strongly channeling Thatcher. And I think perhaps some people who uh, weren't around during the Thatcher era don't quite appreciate how much Thatcher cosplay, mm. and not just the cosplay, but the whole voice, um, how much of that there is going on. She knows exactly what she's doing there. Now, I was a little mean about YouGov getting the uh, the results wrong, um, so I will re- recommend its instant reaction poll of voters. Only 22% were pleased uh, that she was a new prime minister, only 19% confident in uh, that she would tackle cost of living, and just 14% think she'll be better than Johnson. Is that good for her? Like, is, is the only way up? I don't think she much cares about being liked, and that is another key it's good, difference. That's good news. It's a key difference with Boris Johnson, who, of course, very much wanted to be loved. She doesn't want to be loved. She wants to be in power. 
I think she will continue to land very badly with the public because every survey that I've seen shows that the more people see of Liz Trust, the less impressed they are. And I don't think today's performance at PMQs in it will, will, will change that. I think she's also trying to be a quite dull PM because she senses... <laughs> she Great said, news. Well, you know, after Boris Johnson, she senses that it's time for a complete change of tone in the party. And she can see that what she needs to take on the Labour Party is a sense of dullness and competence. And she is already beginning to, to embrace that. Well, I mean, her strategy of being dull and disliked may not pay off. But do you think she's safe until the next election? Because some people are just going... Oh well, well they'll they'll just get rid of her if she's not working. Could would it fly? Could the Tories bear to get rid of a, another PM so soon? I mean, and how would that look? I don't think they could. I think they could not do that without calling another general election immediately. It just would look so incredibly anti-democratic to kick someone out that fast. So she is essentially the last chance they have to to regain the public's confidence without having to hold a general election. And so it's in their interests to wait and see if she can turn things around. And you saw today at PMQs a lot of braying in support of her a lot of it from people who think she's she's pretty crackers, but are nonetheless prepared to suppress that instinct in order to try to keep their party mm. in power. Um, Hannah, before we do PMQs, um, she's not uh, a great public speaker. How was her mm. first speech to the aspiration nation from uh, from the steps of number 10? Oh, I mean, boring is the word. Uh, you, what you'd expect in that sort of moment is something that really kind of inspires a population, kind of d- generates a sense of togetherness. Didn't really get any of that. The language that she uses uh, was was absolutely born of political cliche, very little substance. Um, and I think people will be disappointed with that, especially because, um, as we've just been saying quite rightly, there is this, I guess, demand for a serious kind of politics now. And, and perhaps boring could play well for her, but it needs to be backed up with substance and a sense of detail and, and, and competence where Johnson basically... His entire shtick was the bluster and the gags. Yes, people have tired of that, but what they want to see is something in return, and there was not enough there. It was it was the boring version of Johnson. It was it was just um, sound bites. Well, with she said no substance. Britain is will be a great country, but she doesn't really have that kind of the vibe of optimism. Yeah, exactly. A, a great country of what as well? Let's let's hear about what that would feel roads. like, what it would look like. She kept, <laughs> yes. she kept mentioning right. roads as if that was what people were crying out for. I was expecting pot holes to come next. Uh, No, I mean, it was really actually disappointing. And I think people were, anyone who chose to watch that would have been hoping for something to cling on to, even if you disagree fundamentally with the politics and you're waiting for the next general election. You want something to believe that there's now a steady, competent hand. And while the steadiness was there, the dullness, fine, but the competence still missing. Um, Now, at PMQs, where Starmer is no longer the dull one, (laughs) <laughs> um, it seemed like a sort of, you know, really old-fashioned clash on economics. Starmer accused uh, her of trickle-down economics. She accused him of tax and spend. Um, it was just like, oh, I've seen, I've seen this movie before. Were they both picking the right fight, do you think? Yeah, I think they were. I was quite pleased to see that, to see um, a, a, a quite an old-fashioned um, policy-based 
debate. Um, how refreshing. And yes, she does make Starmer look like a great orator, which is remarkable. And as, uh, as someone who would certainly vote Labour at the next general election, that's quite welcome from me. The other thing that was really interesting about the debate is that I, uh, despite the fact that she's been in the cabinet for eight years and should be absolutely all over the detail by now, um, she didn't seem to predict what Starmer would come at her with in terms of the problems with cutting tax. Tax cuts is all very well as kind of your your basic ideology, but the people Starmer was referring to are people who essentially w- won't pay tax. Mm. They're the working poor who are on such low incomes that this will make no difference to them. And she didn't seem to be prepared for, for that question, the fact that you know, she can't answer that question, and she should have been, really. So some people describe this as the, the most... Um, right-wing Tory government in in a hundred years. I don't I don't know whether that means that hundred years ago there was a more right-wing. I don't know if it's just a big number. Um, how might she be worse than Johnson on the policy front rather than the the character front? What what should we be uh, stealing ourselves for? This is undoubtedly a very right-wing government by any historic standards. But I'm not sure it's more right-wing than, say, the cabinets of Boris Johnson or Theresa May or David Cameron. And in fact, I think when each of those came along, we were saying at the time, this is the most right-wing government ever. Um, What I'm actually more concerned about is, uh, can I say, um, even if I were or were not uh, very right-wing, actually, um, I would be concerned that this is not necessarily a particularly conservative government. And what I mean by that is that you could see David Cameron, for all his slickness and charm, was undoubtedly a Tory. Theresa May, absolutely a Tory. Boris Johnson and Liz Truss don't have track records of particularly sticking to beliefs from one year to the next or even one day to the next. I think Truss's message at the moment is absolutely solidly Thatcherite. It goes back to what Roz was saying about the Thatcher cosplay, right down to coaching of the voice. And remember, Thatcher's own voice was heavily coached in the Mm. course of her first five years. Thatcher was an entirely artificial product in the image that we finally think of. And Truss is is channeling that. What's been really noticeable with um, the policy announcement, the main announcement in Downing Street and with the PMQ's appearance is she hasn't changed a record since the leadership campaign. The campaign ended on Monday. This was the perfect opportunity for any serious politician to say, campaign over, I'm now going to appeal to the nation, I'm going to bring people together, whatever you think of the commitments I've made within the party. Instead, she's still playing to the gallery of Tory party members and the rank and file. Uh, Roz, let's talk about her cabinet. Um, Tories make quite a lot of the fact that none of the four great office holders is is a white man. Um, but not the fact that 23 out of 31 uh, cabinet members are privately educated. What does this say about the the sort of the Tory version of diversity? Because, I mean, it is it is notable, as it was notable in the leadership contest. Yeah, it? I mean, this is a case where you should definitely look beyond appearances because, you know, they're managing to impersonate a party that promotes people on the basis of talent, and they're not. It promotes people on the basis of where they went to school, largely, and the connections that they established in school and the confidence that they gained there. And, you know, we have a new black chancellor, which is fantastic, but he went to Eton. Um, And I don't think, frankly, we would have a new black chancellor if he hadn't gone to Eton, which is sobering. I mean, only only five of the current cabinet went to a comprehensive, which is not. Yeah. Three of them went to a grammar. It doesn't say much about the kind of values that, say, John Major liked to inculcate about uh, the Tory party being a vehicle for self-advancement. They are pretending 
to you know, embrace diversity and to be a channel for achievements. And they, they aren't really. And this is why I get a little bit frustrated when people sometimes say, you know, it, Labour has never had a female leader. And yeah, Labour has never had a female leader. But And that it's important that one day very soon, hopefully it does. But right now, that's not what we need to focus on. We actually need to focus on the, the fact that there is a massive cost of living crisis and not get into too much navel gazing about the state of the Labour Party. And it's tempting for Labour to do that and for Labour supporters to do that, but I hope they won't. Um, Sunak and his allies are out um, while Liz loyalists are in. But is this more like loyalty than ideology? Because Dominic Raab and Priti Patel, who are out, they were both contributors to Britannia Unchained. So it's not as if they're kind of one nation wets. Yeah, it's important for her to have a break with the past. And that means getting rid of Raab and Patel. And I think that's also an interesting sign that she won't go quite so far down the culture wars route as people might have expected her to do. Really? I think this shows that her focus is on neo-trust version of monetarism right. rather than fighting those battles. You know, Sunak made it quite clear that he didn't support the depth of her tax cutting. So he had to go what we're seeing in this this new cabinet is a group of people who are focused primarily on the economy rather than on culture war issues. Hannah, I'm going to ask you who's the most dismaying appointee, but I'm going to give my answer because... It's Please me, do. Because it's Suella Braverman as, as Home Secretary, who, um, as we established, is a, is a dim and nasty culture warrior who doesn't like immigrants and may actually achieve the impossible and make Patel look like halfway decent or a quarter way decent, or at least not as bad. Um, who were you distressed to see in the Cabinet? I think the very obvious one is Jacob Rees-Mogg. We knew he'd be there, but it's more about where he appears. So uh, it's interesting that um, the energy brief seems to be separated slightly from climate change now. And Graham Stewart has climate as a kind of under-secretary. Right. It's not in his title. It probably can't be because of his previous statements about it. It's such an embarrassment for the party. Um, a party that, frankly, you know, as I've said before, has done better than I would expect it on committing to net zero targets and so on. Um, but, but to have him as the public face, such a divisive man um, with... Such repellent views on certain issues uh, that I think having him as the face of the energy crisis is a real mistake, actually. So it's not just disappointing for the country. Um, it's also a mistake for trust. Yeah, it's, you also never want Mog on TV giving you perhaps tips there on there how to save time. energy or something. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I know. And Give that Nanny a packed lunch. That photograph of him lying about on the benches will keep coming back mm. to haunt her on this issue. While people are struggling um, to pay their bills, it won't go away. Uh, I, think, I think it's a strange choice. Um, and it must be about shoring up uh, support within the party because it makes no sense in terms of the optics. Um, and what about Kwasi Kwarteng as Chancellor? What would you expect from him? I think it was not a surprise. I think it's probably quite a sensible appointment in terms of his sort of public appearance as a very serious man. We've obviously talked about the diversity issue. They obviously align. Their ideologies are very similar. They have a friendship and a, a sort of political partnership that goes way back. Um, uh, it, it's, it's a sensible choice. I think he'll probably be very well received, actually. And in a similar way, Rishi Sunak 
kind of came from nowhere and became quite well liked uh, during the um, pandemic and for the uh, furlough um, uh, policies and so on, I think there's a, a good chance that he'll become a very familiar and actually quite well liked face. So um, I think it's probably the least upsetting of all of the appointments <laughs> this and, week. And Truss went to Oxford, whereas Kwarteng went to Cambridge. So it's quite diverse in that respect. <laughs> Um, Seth, what about the backroom staff? Um, her two leading economic advisers hail from the IEA and the Taxpayers Alliance. Well, that's not entirely surprising. I mean, Truss's own background is very heavily leaning towards um, think tanks, which are not exactly known for their uh, open declaration of how they're funded and who they're funded. And Now uh, we know who these people are funded by, though. <laughs> Us. <laughs> Ostensibly. But, I mean, Tr- Truss herself used to be deputy director of reform, the think tank, before she became an MP. Um, it's quite interesting how small the world of politics is in the UK. And in a way, it's, it's actually not a bad thing that we pay people to spend time working on full-time politics. The only thing is we've no idea who these people are being paid by in many cases. And given how small that world is, where these ideas come from, whether, for example, an interested financial party that has a large profit to make from them is flogging the same dead horse over and over again until finally some minister picks it up, is actually one of the real sort of untold scandals of our time. So is her base essentially Tufton Street? You know, is that... I I think that would be fair. I mean, um, Tony Benn used to say that all prime ministers were either fixers, plodders and madmen. And he said Thatcher was the ultimate madman, for example. Um, Truss is actually none of these things, particularly. The closest she is is maybe a fixer. There's an element of she's quite good at working the tea room, at speaking to members and giving them what they want. I mean, again, to flog my own particular dead horse on, on clubs, um, Five Hartford Street is the place where she would have uh, these drinks do is called Fizz with Liz, which uh, were champagne receptions to get to know individual backbench MPs. And uh, this was where the Foreign Office protested that they were playing several times what they would normally pay for a, an extremely expensive central London restaurant and saying, could we not go to one of these rather nice places? <laughs> Ros, finally, Truss has put Serti Javid on the Northern Ireland brief. Do you think she'll want to move fast uh, on the Northern Ireland protocol? Or is it a terrible time for a, a fight with the EU? Which Is it something that she might want to just keep uh, muttering about but not actually move on? It doesn't think, feel as though she can fit it in, does it? And I think she's relying on the red meat of renewed monetarism to satisfy the Tory right rather than, as I was saying earlier, this kind of culture war stuff Mm -hmm. and the fight with Europe. On the other hand, you do have Suella Braverman's appointment, which suggests a certain uh, combativeness towards things like the European Court of Human Rights. And human rights in general. And human rights in general. But it may be that her purpose is to crack down predominantly on migrants because the... um, the channel uh, crossings by migrants is, is a growing problem and the Rwanda plan that Priti Patel championed has not in the least affected numbers. Uh, they're still That's continuing not, to go. we were very hopeful. We thought it was a great plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so amazingly enough, it's, Joe it there. It isn't. No, <laughs> no, it's not working at all. So I think she, I can't see how she can keep fighting on those all those fronts. Mm. I think she's going to have to focus. And as I say, I think the economy is going to be her focus. Now let's answer a cyber missive from one of our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. This week, Martin Greenway asks, It feels like we are way past the point where in other countries we might have seen significant protest, if not genuine civil unrest. Why do you think this country is so passive in letting the ruling classes trample all over us, erode our rights, grab power and wealth for themselves and their mates, and to hell with those less fortunate? 
What will it take before we say enough is enough? That's the question is slanted at a particular angle. Um, Hannah, do you, I mean, I don't know, when you say other countries, actually, of course, a lot of countries don't do that. I think probably because France is so close. We look at France yeah. and they're always kicking off. Um, <laughs> there was some sort of talk over the summer that people thought something might happen. Now, historically, I think that that often tends to be something to do with the police. Mm. You know, yeah. when you look at when kind of um, unrest breaks out, it's often some kind of clash between people and the police. Now, this is not about the police. You know, this is this is not what what's sort of going on, the kind of the, the, the real sort of unhappiness and angst at the moment. I mean, were you would you would you be worried going into the um, going into the winter? The um, question stated, what will it take? Actually, I think there is a possibility that there will be a trigger this winter. Um, and it's not just energy bills. It's energy bills combined with something else, which I think would be the closure of small businesses because of energy bills. So we're looking at people who own small businesses. Large number of people in this country own a small business, medium-sized business, employ people, feel very strongly that it's unfair that they're going to lose everything they've built up just because of an energy crisis. Also, pubs. If the pubs start shutting, your local pub can't pay its bill and the pub's yeah. gone. We've just spent two years indoors. We want to go to the pub this winter. We want to see our friends. And I think the combination of that, the, the cap that we were recording this before the announcement on Thursday from Liz Truss about what her package for um, how households and businesses will be around energy. But the talk today on Wednesday is that it's going to be a cap of £2,500. That's still far too high for most households in this country. So I think the, um, the kindling is there. Uh, you're right. What's going to be the final thing that ignites it? Police haven't behaved that well <laughs> over the last two no, years. No, no. Certainly the possibility that there could be another terrible mistake from there. But, um, but yeah. Ros... This is sort of framed as if this would be kind of a, a good thing, mm. as in not letting the ruling classes trample all over us, et cetera, mm. et cetera. Historically, though, that, that's, not, um, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, if you look at sort of 1981, yep. I mean, obviously, there's the Falklands factors. You can't say exactly what would have happened without that. Mm. But that did not sort of lead to a sort of change in government. 2011 didn't. There was, of course, the poll tax riots. That's always the classic example that people mention where that did lead to change. Um, yeah, I sympathise with, with Martin because I've thought so myself. A couple of weeks ago, I was thinking, yeah, well, surely we are at that point. Um, I would caution against being that middle class observer who wants the working class to rise up for them. What I would call the Seamus Mill tendency. <laughs> it's not a good look. Uh, it's, it's, you know, hoping that people who um, are struggling more than yourself, perhaps, although you may be struggling, Martin, to uh, will, will act and will uh, do this is, I completely get that instinct. But there is civil disobedience coming on in the form of the Don't Pay campaign. Mm. And this is quite, this is a massive deal to sign up for this because not paying your bills, you know, you're, you're risking being cut off, you're risking your credit rating going, you're risking bailiffs, you know, all kinds of things. That's a massive thing. It's potentially worse than what the new policing bill can do to you. And I think people have been hanging on as well. That's the last reason. Are hanging right. on and seeing whether Trust will act and will step in before uh, and, and, and whether she will do enough. Seth, are you surprised perhaps, you know, not that there aren't kind of uh, action in the streets, but, you know, that there aren't sort of giant protests? I've learned to not be surprised by these things because when we look back at past major, major instances like this, 
there's a tendency to draw lessons on the basis of inevitability and saying, well, it had to happen like that. Well, actually, in 1973, the government was effectively brought down the following year as a direct result of the mass strike of miners, which triggered off you know, an early election in February and, and the fall of Ted Heath. Um, in, in the mid-1980s, you have the miners' strike. It doesn't bring down Thatcher. But it, for a while, it was touch and go. And if the government hadn't done things like stockpiled vast amounts of coal in reserve because they were prepared for that very eventuality because they were fearing a 73-type uh, rehash, mm. it could have gone the other way. Um, 2011's the last sort of large-scale thing like this that I can think of. And that was a really interesting case of um, generational inequality. It was in the context of a lot of riots across Europe, mm. particularly amongst young people. You know, you look at somewhere like Spain, which had 30% unemployment amongst the young people. Um, and so you get a, a, a lost generation who have no prospects. And funnily enough, a decade on, that same generation still have no prospects uh, compared to the generations which came beforehand. So I'm not going to make bold predictions about whether there is or isn't likely to be something. But um, we are in a period of great instability. And the, ge the generational thing, I think, is really uh, important because we're seeing um, the, the situation where we've got the horrible internet slang, but this kind of culture of OK boomer that, you know, the, the older largely conservative voting generation, very well off, are basically backing Liz Truss. They have her back and everybody else pays the price. And so it's the same thing. And I think we probably will see that play out as part of any civil disobedience that, that, that arises now. What was interesting with 2011 was that it was a relatively localised protest originally mm. in North London, which spread and spread across London and spread, then spread to different cities. When things take off in Britain, not necessarily in terms of violence alone, it's usually one straw that breaks the camel's back that's actually quite minor. If you, even if you think about the fall of Boris Johnson, it was one relatively minor scandal. I mean, who would have foreseen that Boris Johnson would come, uh, would have his downfall brought about by a sex scandal that wasn't his own? Mm. But we'd had so many things beforehand, it was just yeah. the latest. Next this week, we're reluctantly diving into the labyrinthine mind of Mary Elizabeth Truss. So, Hannah, the former student Lib Dem uh, is now in charge of, uh, as I said, what's been described as the most right-wing government in 100 years or thereabouts. Some people find that journey surprising. Does it make sense to you? It doesn't make a lot of sense on paper, but I think it makes sense if you look at her as a sort of head girl type character. And I think her sort of boring oratory as part of that, she strikes me as somebody who has essentially done what's expected of her and pleased people throughout her career. We talked about her as a fixer. Well, what makes her a good fixer is that she knows what people want and she knows how to deliver that herself as a, as a kind of character in that. Um, and I think that's kind of where she's ended up going in her career. What do people want? How can I do that? How can I do what's considered the right thing for, for me or the people who surround me at that time? She doesn't seem bogged down um, with this kind of ego that Johnson has. It's more about... Um, how can I, I guess, impress the teacher? How can I be the best at uh, what I'm supposed to be doing right now? That, that, I think that's where, how she's ended up on this quite bizarre journey from sort of a Lib Dem Remainer from a socialist household to now, you know, governing the uh, most astonishing set of policies. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with the stories of people who turned to the right. There's a really good book called Exit Right about the sort of history of these um, these people that actually came from from communism, Trotskyism, um, you know, and ended up becoming massive uh, neocons and neoliberals and so on. So it doesn't surprise me necessarily that that she would she would turn quite dramatically to the Tories and then sort of have that thing of, of a convert, particularly as she was very very young. 
it's actually quite hard to sort of read her motives. And Raz, there's a running argument about whether she's truly an ideological Thatcherite or just a slippery opportunist who thinks, well, this is what the base wants. Now, I don't think she's as shallow as Johnson. She doesn't seem to believe in anything except Johnson. She's certainly less of a people pleaser. Um, what do you What do you think of, of those two or somewhere in between? I think there's elements of ideological Thatcherite. I think there's elements of, you know, opportunism. Both are going on. She shows fundamentally a remarkable ability to exploit the times and to tap in, as I was saying earlier, to the Thatcher myth as it now is. She believes that by doing that, she can simultaneously appeal to the older wing of the Conservative Party who remember Thatcher quite vividly and translate that worldview to the current state of Britain. And I think she's very wrong about that. Thatcherism was a credo for its times. When she talks about hardworking people, it shows a complete inability to grasp how the way that people make money in Britain today has changed vastly. It ignores the fact that it's one of the things that Hannah was alluding to earlier, that a lot of people are making money out of being landlords, basically rentier capitalism, which is not hardworking sitting back and watching the money come in quite often, although I'm sure the landlords wouldn't like to hear me say that. But it's a different way of doing that. And I don't think that she is going to be able to impose her Thatcherite economic mantra onto Britain in the way that she thinks she will be able to. And the hardworking people who really are working incredibly hard are earning so little they still qualify for national benefits under a conservative system to prop up their, their ability quite, to live. She still seems to equate sort of the rich and indeed corporations with working hard and doing the right thing, which is not yeah, I mean, strictly when, true. When you think about how inequality has changed, you know, so massively, the difference between the wage of the average worker and the wage of the CEO has vastly increased since the late 70s. And she doesn't seem to have noticed. And how hard can the CEO work? If like, if, if it's gone up by, I don't know what, what I, can't, I can't remember exactly what the figures are. Mm. It's like, it's just such a bizarre idea that if you just sufficiently work, you know, work hard, then you will become richer. And if you don't work so hard, then you will be poor. Well, she doesn't actually mean working hard. What she means is taking on risk and, you know, the kind of risk-taking that the uh, business the business community take on that your ordinary wage slave doesn't do. Um, and they deserve to be rewarded for that risk. And you can see that running through her rhetoric already. You can see that also in the Conservative leadership election. If you talk to Conservative activists about the things that really motivate them, this whole language around success stories, risk takers, entrepreneurs, people who generate money and wealth, what they mean actually is a sort of casino style approach to economics. And there are winners and there are losers and there are people who just got lucky. I actually think the National Lottery has a huge amount to answer for in our national psyche on this because the mantra of it could be you is so deeply rooted that people do actually think positively that they should sustain a system that wholeheartedly disadvantages them personally right now because they hope one day the very things holding them down might pluck them out of obscurity and make them multi-billionaires. And that mindset, which is so central to this sort of casino conservatism that she pushes, um, has basically been the button that she's been pressing for the last two months through the conservative um, leadership election. Again, she's still in this campaigning mode, pushing that. 
it also illuminates that that sentence, do the right thing. What a nebulous term. And, um, and anybody who's listening to her, I guess, can put their own gloss on that. The casino capitalists believe it's about them and their risk-taking behaviour. And the people who are working in a shop and still having to claim universal credit while they earn absolute minimum wage believe that they are doing the right thing, that they are grafting, they're doing, uh, they're demonstrating what hard work means to their children. And both of them can take that away. So it's quite um, a kind of clever phrase, but it really repels me. There, there is a long running conservative strand of ideology, this goes back centuries, preoccupied with respectability at all costs. And what Thatcher added from the 70s onwards was the idea that wealth brings respectability and redemption. Mm. And so this whole idea that you too may be wretched and poor, but one day you can really make it is absolutely central to what trust is trying to tap into. Even as we know that a lot of wealth is generated by uh, grubby crooks. Mm-hmm. Um, Hannah, so, so going back to this question of how ideological is she? This is really important to sort of what therefore she might do, how flexible she might she be. Now, I'm not talking on the kind of the, the fundamental issue of is she going to have to do something to help people with, with energy because she, she just will politically have to do that. How ideological do you think she is? I think that there is one area that she might show some flexibility on, and that is Europe. I know we talked about the, human, the kind of European Court of Human Rights, maybe not there. There's a rigidity there. But on all of the other issues around kind of trade and relationship building, I think, I hope, because of her, her background, the fact that she did campaign for Remain and then sort of obviously believes in democracy, can't be seen to say anything other than this is the route we're taking now. I do hope that there's a kind of understanding that there needs to be a balance. Brexit has happened, but maybe there'll be a a relaxation of of, of the hard line there. On other points, I think she is a populist in the sense that she's a Thatcherite, as we've been discussing and as Ros has said, but um, I I think she probably is very focused on tax reduction, trickle-down economics, and there's no room for for many of them. But we didn't call Thatcher a populist at the time. Like how much of she obviously doesn't have that populist personality of Johnson. I mean, do you think this is you know, and part of populism also, a huge part of that is the is is the kind of uh, culture war stuff. So do you think she is actually a populist? Can you can you be a kind of Thatcherite who's tapping in, as Seth says, to some some really quite kind of old school kind of Tory appeal, which seems to be sort of I would say shrinking. So again, I think that's there seems to be a lot of disagreement is that whether this is a continuity with Johnsonism, and yet in all the stuff we've said so far, doesn't seem like Johnson in either her personality or her priorities. Yeah, I think I think you're right uh, that you, of course Thatcherism wasn't populist at the time, but there's a sense that the Conservative Party have made it a form of populism now in the way that they've they've kind of uh, used it as part of um, their identity in the last. Uh, 10 years and the way Johnson has changed conservatism by the nature of him as, as, as a character, as an ego. So I think there's an interesting kind of conflagration of the ideas there. Um, this kind of big figure populism, culture wars being brought together with the kind of um, fiscal conservatism that she's going to try and use. But I don't think as a, as, a, as a figure, she has any of the characteristics that make a populist leader. So her chances of Continuing that into in a successful way over two years into a general election of very very. I didn't see it working at all. Exactly, I, I mean, just I, can't work out how it would work, and that's not wishful thinking on my part. Yeah. No, I agree. I think there's no chance that she can possibly win the next election, the, the whatever people, route she takes. The only people who think she can are like neurotic Labour supporters. Populists generally <laughs> have personal qualities that make give them a connection. 
to yeah. the people. She does not have that. That is her weakness. She cannot move people. She cannot inspire people. She knows that. So she has to use a borrowed ideology that was proven to have worked among her supporters, Thatcherism, and riff on that so that her followers quickly understand what to get behind. You can't have a personality cult with her. It's like when people try on the left to talk about, you know, have a go at the cult of Starmer. Well, there isn't a cult of Starmer because there isn't the personality that generates a cult as there was with Corbyn, as there is with Johnson. But like, that gets into the lack of originality and the lack of original thinking that we have in politics today because the dialogue, for example, amongst Starmer's supporters is how quickly can we replicate the Tony Blair playbook? And the dialogue, likewise, for Trust is how can we replicate Thatcher's magic in that sort of way? Now, the Conservative Party electoral strategy hasn't changed that much in the last 40 years. It's we are never going to win more than 50% of the vote. We don't need to. We just need our wedge of about 40% of the population or so to give us a parliamentary majority on the current system. Um, and I can see how they're trying to hold out for that. Um, one thing where I would slightly disagree with Ross actually is about the chances of um, this <clears throat> culture war strategy actually being taken forwards, because I think that that in some ways offers their best hope in that Johnson's electoral coalition in 2019 was very strange for the Conservative Party. It was very unusual in terms of where they were registering. And there were loads of people who were traditional Labour supporters who were saying, I'm going to lend my vote to the Conservatives just on this one issue, because I think the European Union is such an important issue. Now, that's vanished in its salience just because we've left the EU, you know, whatever you think of that. And so we now don't like it. the Conservatives... Are, <laughs> I got the hint. Um, but now the Conservatives are thinking, how can we hold together that 2019 coalition? And... The thing about the culture war stuff is it actually is really good at holding together those voters on those particular issues if you bring up that as an election issue. Yeah. Where it falls flat is that you may have noticed that no one cares, frankly. That's the thing. <laughs> it's totally irrelevant. So they may be hoping that they can uh, whip this up as being a, a major election issue. Um, one of the things I, I noticed just prior to Oliver Dowden's resignation, which I know was about by-election results, but... Um, he got the sense that, well, you got the sense that Dowden didn't really believe this stuff when he was arguing it himself. And I suspect not just a him, of, there's a yeah. number of them, absolutely. The, the kind of shallowness in, in their presentation well, on all of those things. Well, the reason why Kemi Badenoch kind of scared me was because I thought she really did. Yes. Mm. She really did believe that. I think Zola Bravman really does. But I mean, note that Kemi Badenoch has been shunted over to trade which is not what she wanted. She wanted to be in culture or education. She wanted yeah. something much bigger. She's actually been a bit sidelined. Yeah, good. Because it would be absolutely mayhem, her education. Um, Seth, I wanted to ask you about sort of foreign policy. Um, the writer Helen von Bismarck um, points out another paradox, I suppose. Is she wants to be really tough on China and Russia while also being sort of frosty with the, with the EU. So do you think that she is consciously going to make a choice to sort of dial down the the clashes with Europe, because you can't, it's not like she's, you know, simpatico with Biden either. So I don't know how you can be tough on China and Russia if you're not friendly with your allies. She will have to make some tough choices. The thing about Truss's opening speech was that her stances were either leftovers from the Conservative Party leadership election, things like tax cuts, which are catnip to Conservative Party voters, or else they were things more or less thrust upon her. So I have a strong feeling that Truss's foreign policy may well be defined by events happening to her rather than initiatives that she's going to take. This is why, uh, as I was to wrap up this bit, this is why I find her a bit of a puzzle because, as Hannah says, she does not convey sort of burning ambition. It was obvious that, you know, Boris Johnson basically popped out of the womb and wanted to be prime minister. You don't really get that. And, and so, therefore, I wonder why anybody would want to be prime minister 
at this time with kind of a, an ailing party during a horrific crisis. She doesn't, see, she doesn't seem to be so consumed with it that she would want this sort of poison chalice, but, but there she is. Before we go, let's take a quick look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Uh, no trust mentions are allowed in this section. Uh, Hannah. So this is a story from Australia and it relates to the housing crisis, which we were talking about, alluded to very briefly earlier. Um, in Brisbane, a very large block of landlord-owned properties has been basically sold off entirely to Airbnb. Um, long-term renters, families, all been hoofed out. There's nowhere to go. They can't afford local rents now. They've been there uh, many years. And this is after the local government uh, in Brisbane had imposed a 50% rate hike on short-term uh, lets in the area. So policy isn't working. Wow. Even the policies we're thinking of implementing here in some of the areas most pressed by this, like Dorset, Cornwall and so on, uh, it's just not working. And it raises a huge question about where we're all headed, um, especially for the poorest renters in the country. Roz? Uh, a bit of good news, because I know I sometimes... OK, because Hannah really brought the mood down. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Hannah. Every respect. week I bring <laughs> the, the, the tragedy, sorry. Well, as we, as we know, um, you know, Putin has been cutting off Nord Stream... Um, and putting putting Europe under pressure in terms of energy. But France and Germany are cooperating in a quite striking way on this. So France has a nuclear power problem at the moment. It's got shortage of it because its reactors aren't, some of its reactors aren't working properly. But France has agreed to send gas to Germany while Germany is going to provide France with electricity if it runs short. And it's just, you know, it's almost like the early days of the European coal and steel community, the precursor to the EU. And it's, it's just... European Friendship Club. I know, I know. And it's just really heartening. And I thought, given our history, our listeners would like to hear about that happy cooperation. Well, my under the radar, which clearly wasn't under the radar because you just mentioned it, was also going to be the fact that Gazprom uh, isn't reopening Nord Stream 1 after, air quotes, maintenance closure. But it raised, it brought up a point that I think I'm going to credit to, to economist Duncan Weldon, where he said that action, which I hadn't actually put these sort of two things together, saying where we all know that, that obviously the, the invasion of Ukraine is, is the major reason why gas prices are so high. And he points out that actually for the government, the action on energy prices is required to keep public support for Ukraine, that this is actually the result of a government policy, I think a, a sort of morally correct government policy. But you can actually see both on the far left and the far right you know, a real movement towards kind of let's just get back on better terms with Russia. Let's pressure Ukraine to, you know, to sign a deal. Let's get this over with because of energy prices. And so really for its foreign policy decisions, and like I said, I think the right decision to hold up, the governments have to act. Otherwise, they're going to lose the public. Uh, Seth? Yeah, I, being a sad anorak, I keep an eye on uh, the Electoral Commission's filings on uh, party funding. And what seems to have gone largely undernoticed are the party accounts for 2021, which recently came out. Uh, people seem to have obsessed over the fact that the Labour Party's membership is down 100,000. Well, yeah, party memberships go down all the time. But the Conservative accounts are really interesting. Uh, it turns out that last year they made about 20.5 million in donations. Now, yes, that's up a little bit, up 3 million on the previous year of the pandemic pandemic. 
But actually, it is way, way down on the 55.7 million in donations they were getting in before the year before that. So this is a party that's in serious trouble, I think. Add to that, you have Ben Elliott as Conservative Party chairman, who's been at the centre of the fundraising ecosystem, ran up. He, he resigned before Truss even came in. I mean, mm. He just quit in post. It's not unusual for the each new leader to have a whole new ecosystem of fundraising around them. But they're starting with a blank slate and quite possibly a lot of debt. Uh, In the footnotes, there's an £11 million loan that they've had given to the party by a Conservative Party trust stroke fundraising organisation. This does not look like a party that is gearing up for a general election anytime soon with any kind of a large war chest. Well, here is a funny story uh, related to that. For America, there's a big New York Times piece on how uh, the Republican... Senate election committee. I can't remember exactly the name of the body, but it's the one that specialises on the on the Senate for the midterms. Um, spent vast amounts of money on really aggressively targeting donors. Like the aggression in America is just demented. And it's actually they brought in less than they've spent. And I, it seems incomprehensible to me that they could have spent it was like $180 million on like essentially internet advertising and on like pushing people. And they basically squeezed all the kind of nutters dry. That's the show. Thank you to Roz. Thank you. Hannah. Thank you. And our guest, Seth Tevo. A pleasure. Don't forget, there are just a few tickets left for our final live Leicester Square Theatre show of 2022 on Wednesday the 14th of September. That's next week. Go to leicestersquaretheatre.com to book. And stay tuned for the extra bit exclusively for Patreon backers. That's after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thank you to some of our loyal and brilliant supporters. Thank you to Agnesa Rokita, Richard Little, Larissa Hume, Ashley, Marco, James Dubry, Claudio Caposi and Marcus Saban. Thanks so much to Rob Kimona, Ben Knight, Ben Rogers, Darren Shepard, Johnny Ball, Ruth Bailey Too, Anna Kaminsky and Martin Slater. And thanks to John Anning, Sonny Sharma, Alex D, Darren Morrissey, Nick Watts, James, Peter Lee and Sarnis. See you next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Roz Taylor and Hannah Fern. The producers are Alex Reese, Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofronevich. The sister production from Kasia Tomasiewicz. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison. And audio production is from me, Robin Lieber. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, comedian and consumer rights advocate Joe Lysett was booked onto Laura Kunzberg's Sunday morning show ahead of the imminent coronation of Liz Truss. Her again. He insisted, despite all previous evidence to the contrary, that he was in fact incredibly right-wing and thought Truss was brilliant and very, very clear. There was predictable uproar and the show is apparently being reconceived so that this never happens again. <laughs> um, did anyone watch the show as it went out? rather than the clip, because I don't do politics on Sunday. Alexandreou does, and I just can't think of anything worse. I have a life, sorry. Right, (laughs) that's that's the thing. so I, we can't, I suppose we can't really comment on how, on how Lorkensberg made the transition to this, to this format. But she did seem rather awkward yes. talking to Lysit. But who... I mean, she has researchers. They have a whole team preparing that show. 
How can it possibly have happened that she was underprepared for exactly who Joe Lycett is? It's not like he's a stranger to the political arena. He actually gave evidence to a select committee not that long ago based on his uh, pretty good, I think, TV show around consumer affairs yeah. and in which he absolutely commits to the bit. <laughs> this yeah. is what he does. He It's his entire brand of comedy. And that was a little teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more of God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God What Else, every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going. So thanks for listening and see you next week.